he was kind of like an oddball, I would say, in in philosophy, kind of like um, a, a renegade uh, thinker, someone who was really like um, outside of like these various labels and streams and traditions. Today on Mind Matters, we are joined by our special friend, Lucien Koch. Koch. Luke, maybe you should pronounce your name. Uh, Luke's a German. Uh, Lucien, so the first name is French. Koch, last name is German. So Okay, cool. Yeah, we, we met Luke on the street uh, a few weeks ago and thought he was a cool guy, so I wanted to have him on the show. <laughs> no, we've, we've known him for for several years and uh, decided to finally bring him onto the show because he shares our interests and um, he's fun to talk to. So as our first show with Luke, we're going to be talking about a philosopher named Robin G. Collingwood, author of several books, most well known for his work on the philosophy of history. He wrote a book called Idea of History, which was published posthumously, um, but he'd been, he'd done work um, while alive, published essays while he was alive, um, but his, I guess, most important work on history was published after his death. But he wrote about all kinds of things. He was, he wrote about the philosophy of art, of metaphysics, of religion, and some of his... Um, well, the, the odd thing about him is that he's a, a great philosopher and his, and his works are, are kind of famous in kind of a niche, a niche way, but he's not really recognized. And part of that was because he died fairly young. He died in what was it like 43 or something like that? Something like that. And, but he was only, oh, this book doesn't have his birthday. He was only, oh yeah, he died when he was 54. Yeah. In 1943. So fairly young, his, his death kind of, he got sick and and died young. And according to at least one article that came out recently published in Prospect, um, how was the, what was the name of that article? Is how, how the untimely death of R.G. Collingwood changed the course of history forever or something like that. Um, how the untimely yeah. death of R.G. changed the course. Oh, philosopher, I, I, I got it. Um, so we'll be putting a link to, to that article in the, in the show notes. But, oh, but one of his other kind of most famous books, at least among people who know of his work, is his autobiography, a short work, like 150 pages or something, maybe not even that, or 160. Uh, it was 100 and, let's see, well, something like that. Yeah, 169 and or something like that. There it is. We've got a couple copies here, <laughs> including the extended edition the director's cut, the, <laughs> the, Zach, the Zack yeah. Snyder cut. Yeah. Um, so we'll be talking a bit about that. I've got this one. I haven't read his autobiography yet, but I read Idea of History. I read one of his first books, Speculamentus. Um, I read his Principles of Art, which we've talked about on the show before. We talked about that on our show that we did on the Joker, on Joker, uh, the movie last year. And I've been reading this one, an essay on metaphysics, which is really interesting. So we'll be getting into a bunch of, probably just a bunch of his a bunch of his ideas, and then maybe a discussion on uh, maybe philosophy in general. I know we were discussing um, with Luke last week the question of kind of what is philosophy good for, and um, so we'll have something to say about that. So, guys, we'll 
Lucien, maybe what are your thoughts on Collingwood? Where do you want to start? Yeah. Do you want to talk about his autobiography? Yeah, maybe um, because that's really a, a, a very nice uh, book that packs quite a punch. So I can really recommend it uh, to everyone, even those uh, who are not not so much into philosophy and are a bit maybe um, shy away from from the topic because they think it's uh, it's a bit too crazy. <laughs> so um, this is really very readable, and um, I think uh, one of the things that really um, has impressed me with Collingwood um, is that he he has this um, uh, this how you say like um, capability to to really um, bring forth his uh, thoughts, even though it's it's complex thoughts, but he can really put it into words very nicely, and you can also really feel that he has something to say. So he's really um, there's fire behind it, so to say. He, he that's my impression, and uh, there are um, other philosophy books where you you kind of have the impression you know they're they're kind of shuffling little logical puzzle pieces around and uh it's not really like this um uh, that you have the impression someone really has something to say i mean that's obviously not true for for all other philosophy but uh, this is really one thing that i noticed uh with collingwood and uh, maybe to get back to your point um harrison why he's not so famous actually i mean um Hardly any people have heard of him, I guess, that are not specialists um, or um, maybe interested in the history of, uh, of the, in the philosophy of history, rather, because that's what he, what he's really famous for. So people in that field, they, they know him because he, he has made quite a name of himself for that, but he's always considered this kind of niche philosopher. So it's, it's a bit, um, he was kind of relegated, you know, into that, uh, that corner, um, uh, he talks about history and he talks about art, you know, and it's uh, it's not really the cutting edge of, of philosophy. You know, the, the real philosophy deals with the philosophy of mind and, and all of that and, um, and analytic philosophy nowadays. And, uh, and that's actually, I think, um, uh, very interesting uh, that he didn't receive that much attention, neither from critics nor from like, people who, who really like him or, or know him uh, he's he's kind of like uh, in the background and I think it, it might have something to do um, and you can see that when you read his uh, autobiography that he kind of managed to to offend about <laughs> about everyone so um, his, his positions like weren't really popular so for example I mean um, he argued that um, uh, you know that there are like absolute presuppositions um, that is like unconscious assumptions or sometimes conscious assumptions that are logically prior to you no know, empirical science. So um, even though he, so, I mean, that basically implies that um, a philosophy is, is kind of prior to science, right? So that, that really didn't, didn't go down well with, uh, you know, all those uh, scientists and philosophers um, who like were on a crusade, you know, to eradicate metaphysics and uh, basically um, say uh, that 
you know, most of philosophy is, is nonsense and uh, you cannot really like make sense of it. And all we need is, is like uh, science and, you know, this kind of scientism movement that uh, was, was really, really strong also during Collingwood uh, time and empiricism and all of that. And here comes Collingwood and says, no, 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 you know, actually like um, metaphysics understood in a, in a special way, you know, we can talk about that later maybe. Um, is actually prior to to all of that, and you you cannot. I mean, if you deny that uh, that uh, that we're dealing with uh, presuppositions and we bring them to the table, so to speak, then you deny you deny your own foundation. You know, even as a as a natural scientist, so that that didn't go down too well. But on the other hand, you know, there were there's people in theology and uh, also some uh, philosophers who are in the opposing camp who. Kind of thing they can like um, uh, figure out like uh, eternal truth, you know, like by philosophizing, you know, things like uh, proof of the existence of God, for example, you know, that's still kind of popular um, uh, among certain theologians, things like that. And Collingwood said, no, 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 um, can't do that. <laughs> so um, it's uh, absolute presuppositions, as he calls it, you know, something like I believe in God. Or, um, you know, everything has a natural cause, uh, like uh, uh, it's governed by natural laws and things like that. No, they, they are neither true nor false. So um, he, he's believed that um, these are just things that we presuppose, but we cannot really criticize them directly or show them true or wrong. So, mm -hmm. so I mean, that group he offended. I mean, then there's like what you might call um, the, the deconstructionists, you know, even though they weren't really around under that umbrella uh, during Hollywood times, but like um, there were the, um, the logical positivists um, and groups like that, um, they were kind of like deconstructionists in the sense that they wanted to do away, you know, with a lot of things and, and especially with, the, with metaphysics. And um, so that kind of school of thought that was just, you know, about eradicating <laughs> philosophies, uh, Basically, um, uh, so that's again, you know, not what he what he thought, and he argued against that kind of thing, and he criticized psychology. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's also very interesting. Um, uh, so obviously, at the time, you know, Freud just uh, came along, and and the psychoanalytic movement was taking off. So didn't really make a lot of friends there you know, either. So, I mean, it's there, there's just a long list of of people that he, you know, that just couldn't, couldn't deal with, with the kind of things he said. And maybe he was, he was onto something, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, their silence maybe speaks, uh, speaks for itself. Um, but uh, yeah, he was kind of like an oddball, I would say in, in philosophy, kind of like um, a, a renegade uh, thinker, someone who was really like, um, outside of like these various labels and streams and traditions and uh, did his whole thing. And oh, he was also, at least in my reading, um, uh, um, he believed in, in like um, uh, moral, you know, I mean, he wouldn't, I probably wouldn't say he was a moral realist, but something like that. I mean, he he's obviously believed in things like virtue and duty and these concepts actually do mean something and have a, a deeper meaning that you, uh, that you can kind of figure out, you know, he, he wasn't saying that you, you can come to like ultimate con conclusions about behavior and things like that, but 
he obviously um, had uh, had the idea that um, there is something in thought, you know, and in these concepts that kind of came to be over long periods of time uh, by human thought that actually have a very deep meaning. So, um, you know, if you're a moral relativist, like um, many, many were and still are um, in philosophy and kind of reject the idea that uh, you can actually find anything resembling like truth in that uh, that field. So, yeah, they didn't like him either. So, yeah, the list goes on. <laughs> well, the one more is even in, I think probably the only area where his ideas have kind of had influences where he's famous is in philosophy of history, but because he kind of, um, in a sense, like he, he wasn't a systematic philosophy philosopher in the sense that everything like fit together, but he, the, his, his thoughts on philosophy of history and even the practice of, of history, because he was a practicing historian as well. And as well as an archeologist, they actually, that that system of thought kind of got integrated into the scientific the into like scientific history, <clears throat> um, just because his his thoughts were so clearly like laid out and basically one of the things he did was essentially just to define history to say what it is actually that historians are doing and just making clear what historians were actually doing and by virtue of that he had an effect. But even in the other place that you mentioned where he's kind of well known is as a philosopher, a philosopher of art. Um, but even there, he was unpopular. I was looking at his at the influence he had on philosophy of art, and like pretty much everyone just rejects everything he said about art because um, uh, well, I can't remember what the justification was, but basically, just because again, his his ideas were unpopular. I guess he was either too much of a romantic or uh, um, like cause he he thought that uh, he thought that art was something like I'll, I don't remember the exactly what he thought, but something like the ex, the the expression of part of it was the expression of feeling and, and, um, and, but as a, as a way of, well, no, I'll leave it there. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to say, I don't want to be wrong about it, but, uh, his, his thoughts on art were actually very similar to, a a, a musicologist, uh, and a composer uh, named Derek Cook, who wrote a book called the language of music, who's also not very popular today, even though I like, I, I read Cook and I read Collingwood and they, uh, they both seem pretty great to me on you know their respective fields, but <clears throat> I wanted to comment on a few things that you said about Collingwood right at the beginning. You talked about kind of what makes him special and how he's just the, the quality of his writing and what he conveys in his writing. One of the things I found about him is is how clear his thought is, and like you said, even if he's even if he's writing about something complex um, or, or some some topic that in another writer's hands would come across as or would be expressed in a in a convoluted like almost incomprehensible way he's very ordered in his thinking so every every like at least in his later years like his his for some of his first work like speculumentist kind of jumps over j jumps all over the place a bit and it's a bit more dense and and difficult to follow but by the end of his life, I found just from from my reading, like reading essay on metaphysics, which was one of the last works he wrote. It's it's almost simple, um, like it's very they're very complex ideas and very like, you know, talking about presuppositions and how uh, like a, a relative <laughs> presupposition will be uh, the the presupposition to 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 uh, to an answer, which is the question to to an answer, but also intermediate between the two and and like you can deliberately make it more complex than it is but the way he lays it out everything is all, all 
is, is always very clear and you just, you end up thinking, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I guess I agree with that because it makes can such be sense. so simple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's actually one thing that came to mind. I'm like, well, can it really be so simple? And, and, maybe, maybe he's deceiving me with his, with his clear thought, but even in his definition of science, um, cause he's saying in this essay on metaphysics, he's asking the question, first of all, what is metaphysics? And so he gives an answer and he goes back to Aristotle who created metaphysics because that's where we get the, the name of the word. And he was the, he was the first person to do metaphysics. And, uh, he says, Oh, well here, uh, reading Aristotle, we can come up with two things like, um, metaphysics is, is two things. But this one thing that Aristotle says it is, is impossible. Therefore, we will ignore that. It's not that thing. It is this other thing. It is the, the science of absolute presuppositions. And, um, oh, where was I going to go with that? <clears throat> well, just that, um, I'll just leave that point there, that, that even if he's talking about something that seems as, as, abstract and oh well what's the point of that as like metaphysics uh, his his thought is clear and you get and by reading it and by understanding his position on metaphysics you say oh well that's actually that actually makes sense that's actually and that's actually useful and you see what what you were saying about how this made him un unpopular he's got a funny a funny little passage in there where he's talking about when you encounter any scientist. Oh, well, I was the point I was going to make is that his even his definition of science is that he goes back to the original defini definition of science. It's basically just like a an orderly, like uh, an orderly laying out thinking. of yeah. Uh, yeah, an orderly orderly thinking on a specific subject. So so you can that's why you can have a science of logic or a science of metaphysics or a science of biology. It's it's you take a a domain of something. And you think orderly about it, and you you arrange your thoughts in a logical order. And so, what metaphysics is 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 orderly thinking about absolute presuppositions. So you analyze um, a statement or an analyze like a, like a, the 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 science of anyone at any point in time, and you think orderly about that to determine what are the the presuppositions behind what what these things what these people are saying so he, he gives the example of newton well newton had the 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 absolute pre presupposition and newtonians in general from the time and in that sphere in that uh, that epoch um had the absolute presupposition that what was it that that some some things are caused some things are caused there are causes for some things and not other things so some things are are are, are some things happen because of a law a scientific law like the like the the law of motion so but there are other things like if if something is in motion and is deflected from that motion that will be that deflection will be uh caused by something else whereas the motion itself was not caused it was de it was determined by a law and then along comes like kant who says that everything has a cause and then along come uh comes einstein that, that says nothing has a cause uh, it's all laws and but th these are these are all absolute presuppositions in the sense that you can't prove them. You can't argue with whether they're right or wrong. They are just what is supposed for that science to work. And even that, you know, that gets me thinking and I haven't orderly thought about it well enough, but, but it, it kind of corresponded to, um, to what I've been reading from in, in a way to what I've been reading from Ian McGilchrist, because Ian McGil McGilchrist, like our listeners will know just from the few things we've said in the last few episodes, um, he makes a distinction between the 
two ways of looking at the world, two ways of experiencing the world that that are basically each of our hemispheres. And one, the left hemisphere is really focused on exactitude and certainty and knowing. And then the right hemisphere is a lot more open to amb ambiguity and uncertainty. So reading this, I can really see Collingwood's like left hemisphere, left brain being like totally precise and coming up with these these certain definitions and and laying everything out. But at, at the same time, he just leaves this stuff open. Well, you, you just can't say whether an absolute presupposition is true or not. It's it's just that you suppose it. You just presuppose it. And then all of your thinking is based on that presupposition, but that's kind of like off limits. And McGilchrist kind of says a, a similar thing, that there, there are certain things that you just can't prove one way or another one way or another. And the right hemisphere is fine with that. And that's kind of like the, the, the right hemisphere is cool with that kind of um, lack of certainty, but the left hemisphere is like, no, I need to know, is it, is it true or not? Give, give me yeah. yes or no. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's, it's interesting because um, uh, I, I kind of um, tried to wrap my head around that concept like for, for a while now. And um, the thing is really, um, uh, if you're talking about like right hemisphere and left hemisphere thinking, you cannot really solve this problem with the uh, with right hemisphere thinking. Um, so that many people, I mean, not many people, because he didn't have that many critics, surprisingly, you know. <laughs> but uh, those who criticized him, they, um, you know, always were tr trying to to say, oh, that's that doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, if you know, if if I become conscious of of one of my absolute presuppositions, you know, why why shouldn't I criticize it? And and how does that exactly like fit in with the relative presuppositions? You know, and they were like trying to like build like a whole system where everything you know fits in perfectly. But the thing is, um, the way I understand him, um, and and I think when reading Collingwood, you really need to to open up a bit, you know, about or or let's say like leave like this logical puzzle thing you know a bit to the side and uh, really uh, try to understand what's going on and and i think you know his idea was kind of that there's is like a a, gra a ground you know a ground of absolute presuppositions you know kind of like background assumptions that give rise you know to to questions and to everything you know our all our inquiries and all that um but most of the time we simply are either not even aware of, of those. And if we are, we, we just don't question them. You know, it's like something that is pretty deep. Um, and uh, I, I think this is, this is really a fascinating, uh, fascinating concept. And uh, uh, I haven't worked out all the <laughs> ramifications too, but um, uh, that's, that's kind of what, what I think he, he, he's going in. And uh, I wanted to also to add about your point, um, uh, of orderly thinking. And I, I think that's really like something I found very relieving uh, with uh, uh, with Collingwood is that he kind of resurrects thinking, you know, because <laughs> uh, thinking has uh, has kind of a bad reputation, you know, because the, the in empirical science and um, ever since like the 19th century and, 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 and the early 20th century, it's like, you know, thinking it's, uh, you know, it's basically just something that converts facts, you know, into, you know, whatever, or it's, it's like, um, you know, the, the importance is always on, on the empirical side and, uh, and thinking is, you know, something that is not really um, thought, thought of a lot uh, uh, compared to like in, in the, 
like the early days or like before when philosophy was all about, you know, thinking and trying to figure out what is what is like the inner logic of thinking and this idea that the the thought world, you know, so to speak, is um, that there are actually there's something happening there, that there is something going on and, and there are it's important and uh, you can actually like um, figure things out. And, uh, and I, I thought that that was really great um, when reading Collingwood, uh, his emphasis on thinking and his criticism, you know, on, on psychology uh, as a science of, of thinking. So that uh, it's like you, you study thinking as if it was like some object, right. That you're having in the lab. Um, I mean, that's not to say, and, and he, he says that that psychology isn't like uh, a useful science, you know, for dealing with feelings and things like that. And uh, but not like you cannot like figure out the nature of thinking you know, with psychology. And uh, thinking is just something you do, and and you think, <laughs> and orderly thinking is actually important. And there are actually uh, uh, you know things you can figure out about how to think. And uh, mm -hmm. I found that very refreshing. And uh, it seems to me that this idea has come under attack from like many different directions at once. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you think about evolutionary psychology or something like that, where it's like, you know, thinking is kind of like explained with some supposed past and, and the tigers, you know, that were out to eat and that, that's why you, you think this and that. And so it seems to me he's onto something that, uh, you know, psychology cannot really deal with thinking and it kind of knows it, but then it tries all the time and, and it gets murky. And yeah, so, so I found that very nice. And, and just a last thing um, that you talked about too, um, you know, his, his um, historical approach. And I found that really, really fascinating um, that he takes apart like concepts that we take for granted and, and shows, you know, how these things developed, you know, not in a kind of like uh, evolutionary way or anything like that, but just, you know, by humans who thought, you know, <laughs> over like a very, very long period of time. Um, and uh, so with causality, you know, for example, that we just take it for granted, right? So one thing causes the other. So that's it. And it's kind of like our absolute presupposition that we don't even question, you know, but how exactly did that concept come to be, right? And then he gives like in, in the essay on metaphysics, he gives like a fascinating account of, of that. And, uh, or like, you know, that the idea that nature is something separate from, from agency. So, I mean, you could also imagine that, you know, nature is kind of micromanaged by some God or some magician or whatever, you know, or even some human consciousness or what have you. And uh, so, I mean, the idea that nature is just, you know, outside humans, you know, and uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, something we take totally for granted, but it's, it's out of that, that eventually like things like science um, came, came to be. Right? And then there's all kinds of things like that, that he really figures out. Um, and it does the hard work, you know, of actually tracing all of that and, and, uh, and looking at the languages and what these words meant in ancient times and, and how certain people thought about it and how that then morphed into, you know, the next idea. And uh, that's really, really useful um, to understand uh, ourselves, basically, because to a large degree, we have all these ideas, you know, that we're not even conscious of, or if we are, we don't question them. Uh, but uh, we, 
we we don't know you know why uh, we have them and what they do with our thinking and what role they play in, in our thinking so so that's really fascinating mm. well so one of the uh, very interesting parts of uh, his autobiography is i think the his childhood and how he describes you know his father's who who's a painter permitting him to be up to his own devices so Collingwood would, you know, pick up uh, books and tomes off the bookshelf and out of pure intellectual curiosity, study history and study ideas. He would take uh, machines and tools apart and reconstruct them. And, uh, and so he had this, this kind of natural um, uh, curiosity and an interest in how things worked. And it wasn't until I think he was 13 years old when uh, a rich friend of the family had paid for schooling for Collingwood. So he didn't have any of this kind of um, uh, pre-filtered uh, ideas about what was what. He, he, he sort of got a long distance into his own growth um, and he also describes periods of time in which he was idle and, and did very little. Uh, but he, he got somewhere on his own steam. And, you know, you said, Luke, that he, you know, he was really uh, a very rigorous thinker. And that is because it, it seems to me he came at everything from his own um, uh, raw undeveloped that that seemed to be the kernel or seed of of his uh of his impetus to to go into philosophy uh th this this natural kind of um wanting to know what was what in a very real sense uh when there was the the realist school developing at around the time that he was in his 20s and was all the rage and the most popular you know he describes putting ideas out there <laughs> that were shot down and and he you know he makes a joke of it he says if if i were to propose an alternate idea or something that was kind of outside of the scope of the realist school they they would come back at me and say well this is what you really mean to say and they would do it with yeah. such certainty and such conviction uh and and power that you know he he could admire it for how well it sounded and how uh, utterly uh, successful it was in destroying his idea, but nonetheless he was able to look back and and say, yeah, but you're still wrong, if only to himself. And yeah, but I thought that was like, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. No, I, I just thought you know this I could kind of like emphasize uh, with him when. He, uh, with that passage and i think uh, many of us probably can right so if you figure out some interesting idea you know and then you go to someone who's like really smart really clever but uh you know not really um interesting you know or not really uh, wise or whatever and he just you know gets at you and and just argues you to the ground you know with some kind of methods and logic and what have you you know and it doesn't even you know in the final analysis have to make a lot of sense you know but uh, so so i found that that really interesting this kind of uh, 
yeah, could, could almost call it sophistry, right? And as, as he describes, um, you know, his teachers that ha had developed this uh, so-called critical method, you know, like critical theory, uh, <laughs> uh, something like that, you know, and um, uh, and just that was just so toxic because it could like debunk everything, you know, and, and you end up like with nothing, you know, every theory you touch, everything everyone has ever said, you know, you can just destroy, you know, with that kind of method, you know, with that kind of logic. And, uh, and uh, yeah, he gives the example also um, of, uh, you know, like this propositional logic, what he, or he calls it that, that uh, kind of tries to uncover like contradictions and, and things like that. And, and he explains how, how this often totally fails because uh, you can only compare two things you know if there are answers to the same question and uh, you cannot just take a, a random statement from the text you know and say oh look if if we uh, you know if, if if you 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 crazy philosophers say the world is one and many you know so you take it apart say in two statements a the world is one b the world is many ha you're contradicting yourself, you know, your theory is nonsense. It's like, oh, it doesn't work that way. You know, I mean, it, this statement could actually make a lot of sense, you know, depending on, on what, what actually was going on, you know, in the, in, in the mind of the one who wrote it and what he wanted was trying to figure out. So, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to say like, I, I could, um, I could really emphasize with, uh, with Collingwood there, um, you know, he, he works something out and goes to, to, to some, you know, somewhat, uh, some of his elders and they just, you know, completely destroy him. And he goes like discouraged, you know, back to his hole and never writes, you know, anything again, you know, thankfully he didn't <laughs> do that, but, uh, yeah. Well, he, he had a brilliant strategy for that, which was, you know, he continued to write and, uh, in some cases get shot down, but he resolved to, um, whatever he, like he would say that, you know, the, the, his circle of, of, um, academics and philosophers and historians basically wrote for each other. Uh, but what he resolved to do was, you know, since, since he wouldn't meet with any success because he wasn't part of that sexy clique of the realist school, he would, he would carry it forward to his students. So if his students came to him and would say something like, well, I, I just heard this from, you know, so-and-so about what Aristotle mentioned regarding, you know, this ideal or that, and Collingwood would say, okay, let's look at what he really said here. He would open up a book and, and he would say, what was the question that Aristotle had firmly in mind when he was attempting to, to say this? And this gets back to answering questions and, and having this organized, orderly system of, of thought that he was trying to impart onto his students. Because, you know, sadly, th this wasn't something that he could, um, that he could engage this level of, of rigor that he had already defined for himself and lived by was something that was beyond these, you know, this kind of hot click of, of philosophers that had 
taken Oxford by storm at the time. So it's interesting to me that he was able to um, still give life to his own uh, his own ideas about how history should be looked at philosophically and how philosophy should be looked at historically. Um, you know, he didn't make generalizations in the way that his many of his peers would make, where, you know, if you really drill down into what they were saying, he could, he could pick things apart. But uh, owing to the fact that, that this clique of realist philosophers would kind of buy into their own shtick and listen to each other, you know, he, he, he had to set himself apart and, and just make a stand for rigorous thinking and, and, and making distinctions where other thinkers weren't making distinctions. And so going back to something that you had said, uh, earlier, Luke, uh, he actually has in his biography, uh, chapter 10 is called history as the self-knowledge of mind. Uh, and that's the title of the chapter. And, and he, you know, kind of lays out that idea where history, and this is something that I got from reading his book, idea of history, uh, or where history, when you look at it and you analyze it and you see how other people think, and you realize, and then you are able to think that for yourself. So then you, in a sense, become that person. So you are now more aware of how you can think by living out how other people think. And so you become more aware of yourself by learning about other people, by learning about history. And so it becomes this, this exploration of self, history does, which I thought was a, a really cool uh, way of looking at things because it gives history so much more significance and instead of it being, you know, just this, uh, dry thing of stuff that happened in the past. It's, it's very much a real part of who you are, uh, by being able to engage with it, uh, in that way. And then to take that even further than, um, this isn't anything that he said specifically, but it's kind of the implication uh, or it's implied in some of the things that he says where, uh, you know, you're talking about to his criticisms of the, the realist school, uh, where he, he looks at it almost as a form of mental masturbation. Again, he doesn't say that specifically or explicitly, but it's kind of implied by, by the way that he talks about them, where they're just, you know, they're, they're in their sexy clique mm -hmm. and they're just talking to each other to, to, to seem more knowledgeable and cool or whatever. Um, and you can get that too with uh, scientists where uh, they have a very cliquish mindset. And so they're, they're each trying to, uh, it's this form of one-upmanship that um, is meant to aggrandize themselves and, and, and to the detriment of the actual science that they're supposed to be you know, working for, which is supposed to be for the good of all but it just becomes a, a narcissistic thing. Um, and so then with science itself, you, you were talking about history as being cut and paste where, and that's something that he talks about a lot is where history is generally just a, a cutting and pasting of this authority here said this cut and put that into the new history book that says, you know, 
historian X wrote X or wrote Y, and then that's basically history. And then science in a similar way to, to how you described it earlier, science, generally speaking, is very similar and in a very cut and paste way where it's like nature does X. And so we write that down. And so now the law is X and there's no real thinking there. It's just an observation and then writing it down. It's, there's no real interaction with it uh, if it's done in that kind of a way. But the way that Collingwood approaches history and philosophy, it gives all of these things more life and more meaning and more value because you become part of all of this because it's all reflections of uh, uh, you as a person and, and what you see and what you're able to see. Um, and so that was, you know, kind of, yeah, just getting back to, to some of the things you said about what makes Collingwood so interesting. I, I think this is what makes him so interesting to me is, is how he's able to take all of these different things, turn them on their heads and by so doing, breathe new life into them. Uh, you know, philosophy isn't this dry thing where it's just a bunch of, you know, intellectual people, uh, you know, just doing it for their own kicks and giggles. Like it, it really does matter. Well, <clears throat> this is probably a good time to, maybe we should have started with something like this, but well, we've kind of been skirting around the edges of it, but why, why philosophy is actually useful. Cause we've said a lot of like nasty things about philosophers, but uh, I want to read some, some quotes from some philosophers that uh, McGilchrist put together. And then, then we can discuss, see what they have to say. So first of all, I'll read one from, uh, this is from, uh, I don't know, let's see what his name is. His last name is Earl, William Earl. Um, this was from the middle of the 20th century. He's a philosopher. And this is from an essay called Notes on the Death of Culture. So he's writing about um, an assumption, which he calls the, the fervent assumption, that the philosopher himself is entitled only to analyze. That is, his work consists in tearing apart intellectually phrases others have put together. He analyzes syntheses, but he makes no synthesis himself. To ask a technical philosopher for his vision of the world is to throw him into the worst of embarrassments. It is hope hopelessly to misunderstand what philosophy now is. The philosopher's answer will not try to supply that vision or even recognize its absence. Rather, it will analyze the meaning of your question in order to show that it really has no meaning at all. It is left for others to supply the vision. And so Earl concludes his essay. Now, this was not always so. For the longest stretch of its history, philosophy was, embarrassing as it is to technical philosophy, concerned precisely with large visions and the edifying that is, it was concerned with the human situation and what was to be done about it. The new philosopher need know in his professional capacity absolutely nothing except how words are used. In any event, pure knowledge has nothing to do here. It seeks absolute purity, absolute independence, and absolute irrelevance to anything anyone might conceivably be interested in. Thus has a noble discipline committed suicide. And then another one. He quotes, <laughs> yeah, he quotes this from, well, what's philosophy actually good for? So um, Whitehead, a philosopher who we've talked about before, who um, 
Collingwood had many disagreements with, but um, also appreciated in many ways. I was also a fan, Phil- yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, philosophy, as Whitehead saw, is the, quote, very foundation of thought and of life. The sort of, it- the sort of ideas we attend to, the sort of ideas which we push into the negligible background, govern our hopes, our fears, our control of behavior. As we think, we live. This is why the assemblage of philosophic ideas is more than a specialist study. It molds our type of civilization. Now, this kind of gets back to um, to what Collingwood writes about absolute presuppositions, because when you look at the presuppositions of a time and place, I mean, oftentimes, well, in more ways than we think, we are governed by the ideas of our time. And oftentimes that means the ideas of philosophers, philosophers whose names we don't know of, whose ideas we don't know of, but through that, that process of life, of just the, the nature of, of, of humans and human society and culture, those ideas become our presuppositions. Mm-hmm. Now, it might work the other way around sometimes. You know, philosophers might just be expressing the presuppositions that are around them, but, but oftentimes it well, at, le- at, at the very least, it becomes those philosophers who then start influencing people. And if we're operating on, on uh, like a certain worldview, a certain vision that is, let's say, that has some, some uh, profound deficiencies, then that has knock-on effects. You know, we're living downstream from that vision. And with, uh, with an uncritical acceptance of, of certain let's say certain presuppositions that influences the way we interact, the way it influences what we see. Even it influences the, the, the questions we ask and then the answers that we come up with, um, and conceivably can, can lead to a disaster and does lead to, to disaster. So, um, one of the things McGilchrist is, is on about is the, this, this presupposition that, that uh, of the the machine model that nature is mechanical that biology is mechanical that uh, that mach- that that we should see everything or that we do see everything in terms of machines and he spends hundreds and hundreds of pages just showing why that's how that is how that is um, present in our worldview and um, how it's presupposed by a lot of the science that's done and how it um, and the effects that that then has, and then alternatives to that. So, what it would look like to adopt different presupp- uh, a different presupposition or a different set or constellation of presuppositions. Um, I wanted to okay. I'll, I'll read one more quote on on philosophy. Um, maybe maybe two. These are from um, another philosopher, Friedrich Weismann. <clears throat> I'm not familiar with this guy, like just like I wasn't familiar with Earl until I read these quotes, but uh, kind of like a, an overview of philosophy, um, Weissman writes, to put the matter in a nutshell, a philosophical argument does more and does less than a logical one, less in that it never establishes anything conclusively, more in that if successful, it is not content to establish just one isolated point of truth but effects a change in our whole mental outlook, so that, as a result of that, myriads of such little points are brought into view or turned out of sight, as the case may be. And maybe one other from Weissman. Let's see. 
Hmm. What is essential in philosophy is the breaking through to a deeper insight, which is something positive and not merely dissipation of fog or the exposure of spurious problems. Insight cannot be lodged in a theorem and it can therefore not be demonstrated. It is, dem it is dangerous in philosophy to hunt for premises instead of just going over the ground, standing back and saying, look. So part of, part of, um, I guess what we've been talking about and what Megalochrist is getting across with those quotations and what he says about those, uh, those thinkers is that there are, there are downfalls and pitfalls to a certain philosophical approach, you know, especially that, that analytic one that just, that just tears apart and doesn't actually provide anything. But there's also, um, there's also like a, a kind of grand importance to, to philosophy, you know, whether people want to want to realize it or not, maybe they've been put off by, by maybe university courses when, when they, where they've had to read the just kind of tedium the, of, of a lot of modern philosophers where um, it, it sounds like it wasn't written by a human because, well, mm -hmm. partially it wasn't. It wasn't written by a complete human. It was written by like, you know, this, this, this part of the brain of, of, uh, of one philosopher that's just ignoring like the rest of his humanity. Um, because it's, that's the way they, I guess that's the way they learn to write. That's what they think they should do. But it like, uh, like Earl has said, you know, it's, they end up writing something that just, it's inconceivable for anyone to, to be even interested in because it's, it's just, a like, well, mental masturbation is Adam. So thoughts, Luke. <laughs> yeah. I, I maybe, uh, you know, um, because we don't want to bash like everything too hard now. I mean, th there is some some interesting things in analytic philosophy as well. So I wouldn't. I mean, the the old quote was um, was definitely geared, you know, towards the analytic tradition, and uh, I think that there's lots of truth in that, you know. But to to um, put on like the the other cliche, you know, the one that the analytic mm -hmm. philosophers always hate and bash, you know, it's kind of like this. Um, you know, salon philosopher who just, you know, talks about like, not like unhinged thoughts about, you know, the world and whatever, you know, and uh, so, uh, or, or just, you know, the, the kind of like um, magazine essayist type. So I think there's still like a difference between that, you know, and mm -hmm. like what Collingwood calls like orderly systematic thinking, so mm -hmm. it's it's not an and it's good that I think that I mentioned to um you know make that distinction. Um if if you criticize analytic philosophy, it doesn't mean you know that that you want to throw out like systematic thinking, you know, and uh, that's that's not the point. And you don't suddenly transform into like a bohemian, you know, yeah. randomly philosophizing about the world. So that's that's not the point, but that this is still yeah. it's kind of like the the two. You know, like um, the two, not cams, but, you know, the, the two cliches, let's say. Yeah, there needs and to be a balance. Uh, so I just, yeah, yeah. And, um, but there's uh, not, I think there's still like quite a few things wrong with, with analytic philosophy. And uh, so I don't know if you want to talk about that, but uh, the point is just, you know, the, a, a certain like, um, yeah, rigidity is is the wrong word, but like a certain care and 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 systematic and 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 logical thinking, you know, logical 
not in the sense of formal logic necessarily just you know um really deep and hard thinking <laughs> so that's that's really really important and um uh, and about the the machine model you know I, I think that's that's really interesting and it's a it's a great example for for an absolute presupposition i think uh, because um it seems to me um many discussions in philosophy they really they they may say different things but they they what they're thinking about actually is machine stuff <laughs> so it's all about um you know data input uh, uh, computation and uh, input output uh, and and things like that and and per, s sensation you know the word has a quite kind of like a me a bit of a you know sensor kind of meaning like in computer sensors and uh, so even like all the words that that are around for a long time they they kind of got infected a bit you know with the with this uh, computer machine type uh, connotations um and i think that and, and people aren't aware so uh, the the question as Collingwood would say you know doesn't even arise you know um that and uh, you know maybe to contrast that you know because you you also said McGilchrist writes about um you know what may be the alternatives you know i i don't know but uh, just to for 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 contrast um like collingwood approaches it and uh, traditional philosophy has approached it more or less is to really take um concepts seriously uh, so for example if you if you talk about um uh, virtue, you know, or duty that, that is kind of like a concept that has meaning and that you can, you know, um, analyze and, and think out consequences and relationships and actually gain understanding. And, um, uh, and so for example, um, if you, I think that's from one of Collingwood's book too, the example, uh, when you experience cold or heat, you know, um, so an old school philosopher would, you know, ask uh, so why is it that you know when when the temperature uh, rises you know suddenly it's not cold but it's something different uh, entirely uh, namely heat you know it switches it's it's a completely new um new experience right it has nothing it's not like a, a scale you know that just keeps it's adding negative no it's, it's cold and then yeah <laughs> And uh, that's the way, you know, like modern people would think about it. And, uh, and, and a modern like philosopher or just, you know, random, uh, random guy, you know, would, would, would probably say like, what's your point? You know, um, it's like uh, temperature rises and, uh, you know, even, he maybe would even come up with evolutionary kind of thinking, you know, and ah, so the cold, you know, is bad for the body and the heat is bad for the body. So the body has developed sensors, you know, to distinguish between them to survive. And it's just, you know, one signal, you know, heat and the other signal is cold. And that's just what it is, you know, end of story. And it wouldn't even like the question wouldn't even come up, you know, maybe there's a meaning, you know, or maybe you can compare that to different scales of concepts where there may be similarities that suddenly something jumps and becomes something different and you could like rethink hard about it but the question wouldn't even arise you know for for most modern people and and that's really interesting you know how, how these presuppositions work because you you may be aware that you think in terms of machine stuff but 
you're not aware that you can or you just simply cannot think differently anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, so it definitely um, seems like it's uh, like these ideas have uh, have a profound impact on in the long run, you know, how they affect uh, humanity's uh, thinking and thought patterns. And Colin would actually believe that um, that you cannot really change them you know, even with a concerted effort. <laughs> so it, you kind of just have to sit it out. You know, the, the way he, he describes it is that uh, eventually, like, it can have different reasons. You know, maybe philosophers had, have new ideas. Maybe science um, comes up with new concepts and new ideas. And eventually, like, as he puts it, um, the old set of presuppositions, they become strained. They, they come under strain. Uh, and certain internal contradictions become apparent, and you know, and and at one point, um, you know, it's just too much, and 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 they break, and and then something new emerges, or it or it gets modified in any in any event. So uh, that's kind of his take on it. That um, it, it's kind of it's, it's a bit you know deterministic or like uh, fatalistic rather, um, but uh, yeah, and it, that's the way he thought about it, and. There's also a warning in this, and uh, this I found also kind of interesting to think about, even though I'm not still, still not sure what I uh, should think about. <laughs> but um, the warning is that we actually should kind of affirm the the presuppositions that we have, so that that there is no point like in just battling them. But and actually, we should like kind of affirm them. And uh, the way I understand this is. Um, that we should kind of work with what we have and uh, not try to, you know, cut the, the, the branch we, we are sitting on like too, too fast. Uh, so that we, for example, like we, we live in a kind of materialist thought world, right? So where, where this kind of materialist and machine thinking is, is very pre prevalent, pre prevalent. And um, I think his point is, kind of like to, to just to take this example in from our time that we can, you know, work from this framework, you know, we shouldn't maybe just proclaim, Oh no, everything is mine, you know, <laughs> or whatever, like, but you know, because it's, um, we have these presuppositions and uh, we kind of need to fight our, our way out of it. If we want to change something, but we should be careful, you know, just not to apply like, deconstructivist logic or whatever, you know, and, and just zap all those presuppositions, but because then we, they, we have nothing, you know, and, and we can, nothing to work with really. So, so anyway, that's, that's my take on, on it uh, at the moment, but it's interesting to think about. Well, that's a very Jordan Peterson esque uh, warning. Uh, and, you know, kind of rightly so, because if you just go around, you know, cutting off all the branches on a tree, because uh, some of them, some of the limbs might be diseased. Well, you might end up cutting the branch that you're sitting on, and then where do you end up? But uh, on the ground with a few broken limbs, and uh, you kind of screwed at that point. So that's very, that's very Peterson esque, and uh, probably apropos. Uh, but, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what I think about that yet, too. But one of the things that he says in in essay on metaphysics is one of the roles of a. I think this is what he says. One of the roles of a philosopher, one of the things that a philosopher does is to, um, how to put it, to to essentially try on 
presuppositions to say, okay, well, because that's what a that's what a presupposition is. That's what a supposition is. Is that it doesn't. Um, it, just the, the the mere fact of supposing it is what leads to the thinking that proceeds from it. It's like, well, if I were to suppose X, then, you know, Y and Z and all this stuff. And it's, so you, you perform almost like a thought experiment. Well, based on this, this supposition, then, then you engage in your thinking based on that supposition, because that's all suppositions are. It's just that with the, with the case of, of, uh, absolute presuppositions in, uh, and doing metaphysics, it's the analysis of what are people actually presupposing. And, and it's a bit harder to do in the contemporary context because they're, because your own thinking is probably permeated by them. But, um, so, but that's not to say it's impossible, but it's, it's perfectly, um, reasonable to, to be able to say, okay, well, what, what if we adopt these different presuppositions but then but then you, you get it you come into a you come to you approach a conflict because let's say that you you don't want to rock the boat too much but you adopt a new set of presuppositions in your in your orderly thinking and you you find out oh well this this actually looks really good you know i, I like this a lot more than i like these other presuppositions then what it, it, it's a it's a difficult situation to be in well then you become collingwood and everyone hates you yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you know, even uh, even Collingwood. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, even Collingwood. You know, at one point uh, in his autobiography, says, "Oh, Speculum Mentis was a a mess, and it wasn't a very good book that I wrote." And then later he says, "Oh, you know, I I reread it and." It's not so bad. It just needs to be qualified a little bit and, and certain ideas expounded upon. So he, so for, for him, philosophy was this living thing that he was constantly refining and, and working on. And there was never any, this, uh, any kind of, uh, endpoint per se. It was this, um, it, it was a part of his being. It was a part of his, uh, growth as a philosopher, as a thinker as a human being. And maybe that's kind of what's missing in the presentation of philosophy in the West. It's that it's not a, it's not necessarily an endpoint, but an ongoing um, learning, an ongoing uh, acquiring of knowledge. And that's why a lot of people don't like it is because they want the certainty. Yes. And that's, I think what is so, um, you know, you mentioned that he he was coming up against uh, uh, scientism or or an earlier version of scientism in his time, and uh, scientism uh, as part of this kind of nihilistic worldview, um, where you know everything is a shortcut, everything is a um, everything is a kind of uh, summarized, easy, certain a powerful answer to certain questions that maybe are not even good questions. And you also talked about uh, how they were dismissive of moral philosophy uh, in that movement and, and how he felt like, you know, this is getting back to the example of cutting off the limb on the tree that you may be sitting on, where an exploration of higher values um, is 
is what's been cut out of uh, contemporary philosophy, maybe. I, I'm not so well read that I can say that with any certainty, but uh, we, we certainly see a lot of ideas that we're swimming in without uh, any mooring um, that, that feel nihilistic, that feel uh, godless and valueless and, and um, degenerate. <laughs> degenerate. Uh, there was something yeah, else it, that I wanted. It's the old, yeah, to your point, it's the, it's the, you know, the empiricist um, contradiction, you know, in the sense that if you say uh, everything is just, you know, empirical and therefore empirical science is everything uh, that we need uh, ever. Um, but then um, this statement in itself is not an empirical statement, right? And that's always the the, the issue with these kinds of things and and w with scientism and all the, you know, there were very many like um, movements that tried to solve this problem, you know, it came up with all kinds of things and the logical atomism, you know, that thought that, you know, in language, you can kind of analyze like logical particles that all correspond to, to reality. Um, but the point is, um, if uh, that's just not how it works, and, and it also, it, it, it cuts you off from all, you know, values, from all um, uh, knowledge that can be gained by orderly, deep thought. Um, and, and that's really kind of like the cutting of the, the limb uh, or the branch. Um, and uh, so in that sense, I would agree that uh, the, you know, the, the, everything in terms of uh, values and things like that, it just becomes nonsense. You know, they, they actually like Wittgenstein and, and the early one uh, uh, actually said so, you know, and, 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 and lots of philosophers at the time and still today, you know, that just it's, ethical thinking is just nonsense, you know, and, and just to, to add maybe one thing to that, because I, I actually uh, wrote, you know, um, take, took a note when I read it in, 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 Calling was autobiography. I, I wrote sad, you know, so sad <laughs> at, at the margins because, like, this eradication of moral education, right? It's just, it's really sad because, um, I mean, you can be cynical about it, you know, and, and say, oh, I mean, to study all Greeks and, and talk about virtues and, and duties and, and what have you. I mean, uh, you cannot ever like establish like a rule book that really can guide your life. You know, it will never like uh, be perfect or, um, you know, um, uh, or just enough, you know, to, to, to know how to live a good life. But that's not really the point as, as you guys said earlier, um, it's a, it's a process and just thinking about virtue, you know, uh, is, uh, just helps, you know, <laughs> If you just uh, think a little bit about it and the concept, you know, comes to life and, um, and you, you gain understanding and it, it, you develop principles, you know, just by thinking about these things. Um, and that's, uh, you know, totally lost in, in modern thought. Uh, it, it, and it, it began in, in, that's why his work is so, so interesting as well, because it's really like at that time that a lot of these, these movements that, that are still with us today, you know, they, they, they kind of have their origin or, or culminated, let's say, and and moral relativism for sure is uh, is is like very um, strong at the time and um, and really uh, yeah it's 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 really sad you know because um, they 
treat morality as a science now and something that you study you know why do people behave like that oh it's uh, you know because they gain x you know that they, they help their tribe you know that, that or, or at some like um, imaginary past you know it's, it's just help the tribe so so people are like a bit altruistic and you know and, and that kind of thinking you, know, you you try to analyze uh, morality as a scientifically as if it was like billiard balls you know that you can measure or whatever and and so much is lost you know with that kind of uh, thinking because you um, if you think about it in terms of virtue and and principles you know i mean like jordan peterson does you know i mean he's a philosopher right i mean he's also a psychologist but he's also a philosopher and uh, and that really speaks to people because there is something there and and You know, to just eradicate that from education and from thinking in general um, and just treat morality as a science is, is really, is, I guess, at the root of a lot, a lot of evil. And it, and it makes you also suspect to, susceptible to all kinds of manipulation and you just have no firm ground and, and it becomes all a matter of emotions. And um, yeah. You know, when you were speaking of that and, and scientism and empiricism, um, I was reminded uh, of the of the molecular biologists. And uh, we had a, a guy on the show who is an electrical engineer who wrote about intelligent design. And you have all these scientists who are true scientists, I think, who who look at a version of, of the mechanistic universe, but they take it as far as they possibly can. They, they are trying to ask questions based on their lifelong uh, pursuit of, of knowledge and understanding what it is that they're seeing on the micro level, on the, uh, you know, on the electric universe level. And they're coming to a conclusion from their point of view that actually points to a higher value, to a universe that is filled with meaning, to a world that is infused with uh, with value and and what must be a injection of information at higher levels of existence or reality. So uh, just something that came to mind as we were talking about all that that um, you know that there's there's being mechanistic in a dogmatic way, in a limiting way, in a way that doesn't allow for uh, the possibilities. And, and then there is uh, the true scientist, I think, who, who can even see how the mechanistic fits with the, the non-mechanistic because they've, they've, they've followed their uh, pursuit and their rigorous thinking and they're making distinctions um, to a very far degree. Yeah, and that, that's maybe what Collingwood means or at least my interpretation, you know, that you cannot or you maybe even should not like just abandon you know your absolute presuppositions willy-nilly because you they open up questions right so if you have a certain set of presuppositions they give rise to certain questions that maybe other presuppositions don't give rise to and in a sort in this kind of like um, mechanistic model it just gives rise to certain questions and and to certain research programs and it's not that they aren't cannot be like insightful or, or useful right and that's maybe also or like harrison said you know with the 
to, to kind of put on different hats, you know, maybe that's the ultimate goal, you know, to be able to really uh, uh, switch presuppositions by a deep study of their history and, and, and also their history as it plays out, you know, in the present. And maybe then to, to become such, such a super being that you can like <laughs> uh, switch them and actually, you know, see through different research programs under different, uh, you know, presuppositions and different grounds that give rise to certain questions. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, yeah. And then that's, I guess, um, you know, the, how you can reconcile something like a, a mechanistic outlook, you know, it's not that it's completely useless, right? I mean, uh, and, and it can produce knowledge. Super, super supposition, man. <laughs> it's the superposition of suppositions in the form of a superhero. That's, that's what we're going for. <laughs> the USS. <laughs> sounds like yeah. a nerdy comic book idea right there <laughs> we, we've got plenty of them yes we just have to find an artist to do all of our nerdy nerdy ideas <clears throat> yes okay yeah i think that would be pretty well that reminds me of a point that I started to make early on and then I didn't. Um, and that was something funny that, that Collingwood writes in the essay on metaphysics, where he's, it's in this, one of the sections on absolute presuppositions where he's laying out the, the initial groundwork for them. And he's talking about how in a conversation with any scientist, you know, you can, you can engage in a kind of Socratic dialogue with them where you, you find the, you kind of question their answers to find their questions. And then there'll be a certain point where you ask, well, what's your justification for this? Or, um, you know, how do you, how do you get here or whatever? I can't remember the exact question. And at that point, there's like a breaking point where the, the person you're talking to will get very nervous and defensive and even like, uh, even violent. And that's, he says, that's the point at which you know that you've reached their abs absolute presupposition. It's because, and he says, I can respect that response. I can re respect the ticklishness with which they're, you know, they, they, um, they hold their, absolute presuppositions but because it shows at some level they know that uh that what was it that they that they can't justify them or that um yeah i think that was what it was that they can't justify them because they're not justifiable um they're just presupposed and so the the process of being able to identify your own absolute presuppositions and then to to, to realize what they are and then to conceivably take on new ones and try them on, uh, see how, see how they look. Then that in itself is kind of a, um, a process that, that you go through to kind of get over that ticklishness, which is essentially egotism, um, in, in yourself. So you actually learn something about yourself and gain a little bit of self-control in the process. And you're a little bit less of a, of a of an emotional machine so you can uh, kind of attack that that uh that uh mechanicalness within within yourself to use the to the, the machine metaphor um there's so there's i'm just basically saying there seems to be more to that process um it's almost like on an emotional level mm -hmm. where because he, he does mention that he, he, the way he puts it you know i think he says on some level they're aware well how about you get to that level 
you know, that maybe there, maybe there's a, an advantage to being able to, to get to that level. And I think that's probably, or maybe, um, kind of one of those advantages of philosophy is, is that by learning to, to think and to, to, to be less, um, just like automatically attached to, to your ideas, to be able to kind of, I can't remember how he puts it in the beginning, if, if it's just thinking orderly, but thinking deeply, um, well, thinking scientifically, I think is how he puts it, is just to, um, yeah, put it thinking scientifically in the, in the, in the broad sense of thinking orderly. Um, just by engaging in that, not only does your thinking become clearer, but on an emotional level, you lose that, that prickliness of... Uh, Attachment. Yeah, of of having of being poked, you know, you're 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 pushing my buttons. You're getting a little too close to the bone, you know, when you ask those questions, when you identify these things that I haven't um, that I haven't thought about, that have repercussions, that have implications for for what I do. Because in, in this context, with the scientists, like this is their their entire being, you know, I am an you know, or a biologist or, a, or whatever. And when you, when you get to the bottom of it to say, to, to, to imply that, oh, well, you know, the, the entire basis of everything that you do is a presupposition that you can't prove, you know, that it kind of has, it, it the emotion that, uh, that is attached with that is, oh, there's the chance that I'm, that, that my entire work and everything that I see myself as is worthless and not true, potentially not true. And potentially I'm going down this blind alley and I have been for my entire professional career. Well, that's not necessarily what it means. Um, because once you actually realize the nature of a presupposition, it's like, no, that's just, it's just that, it's just that there's not as much certainty attached to it. It's like, um, you still find useful stuff because you find useful things by presupposing because that's the only way you can get anywhere. The only way you can answer a question is by having a question. And the only way you could have a question is by having a supposition like to, to ask that question. Well, the, there's another thing at play here and, and it gets back to work terms and it's identification with, with what one believes and thinks and all of that kind of emotional, uh, you know, attachment that um, that's connected to egotism that you mentioned. And that's why I love that, that passage uh, that I mentioned a little earlier about his, you know, presenting an idea to, to people who, uh, who brilliantly just destroy it and shoot it down and do it in such a way and with such panache that even Collingwood himself can go, oh, you guys are awesome. That's just, you know, that is just brilliant destruction. But, <laughs> beautiful destruction. Beautiful. But also, I, you know, he's, he's so, um, he's so confident in his own process in, in the work he's done to get to where he is that he knows it, precisely why, you know, what the failing of the criticism is. And, and why he can he can continue to work on this idea that's just been publicly shot down, uh, because he doesn't have a this this identification or attachment um, that's connected to ego. It's all about the the sincere pursuit, the kind of uh, intellectually honest questioning that he that he's developed for himself, and something that you know we we aspire to. I think for ourselves. 
and that's something that he kind of gets into. Uh, I think it's fairly early on in his autobiography where he's talking about uh, uh, ideas. Is like you, there's there's no such thing as like an absolutely right idea. Nothing that we ever think or are ever going to think is going to be a hundred percent true ever. Period. Full stop. That's just the nature of limited being, which is what we are as limited beings. And so it's like he embraced that simple fact, that simple, uncomfortable fact that you're wrong. No matter what it is that you think, you're wrong. What's the line from that uh, Coen Brothers movie? The Asian character embrace the the contradiction or something? <laughs> Do you remember? The ambiguity? Uh, ambiguity. I can't remember what the word is. Ah, there's a meme for it. But... It might be ambiguity, but... Uh... Well, yeah, it's just... Uh, yeah, it's just it, it, it embracing that simple fact that you're you're going to be wrong no matter what it is, so you just kind of accept it as being like, yeah, I, I could be wrong, but... Or, or at least you're never going to be totally right. Yeah, or at the very least, I'm never going to be totally right. Um, and so that takes your ego out of it, um, to a certain extent, because rather than being a hundred percent certain that you're a hundred percent right, you're a hundred percent certain that you're not a hundred percent right. And it takes anxiety out of it too, because I yeah. think there's a lot of, there's a lot of existential and logical anxiety that people get in when they, you know, like the, like the person, con uh, uh, confronted with their absolute presuppositions like there's an anxiety that's involved in like there's mm -hmm. a there's a fear and you can just uh get rid of it it's yeah. not necessary mm -hmm. well any yeah, final it's, thoughts it's interesting because most people yeah no uh yeah i just uh that's probably not like a final thought uh material um but uh, maybe i could uh just um uh, finish by you know by by saying um, it's interesting what's what's going on in terms of uh, philosophy at the moment. I think uh, especially like uh, on the internet and on the independent front, you know, I've uh, come across some some examples of uh, you know people leaving academia and uh, doing their own thing, you know, founding their own institutes and stuff. And um, so that's kind of kind of interesting. And I would just say like you know if to the listeners, uh, uh, just uh, have the courage to, you know, read things that you that you're interested in, uh, in terms of philosophy, and uh, and don't be afraid to come up with your own thoughts, you know, about it, and uh, even write about it if you if you're up to it, um, or just write about it for yourself, uh, because you can actually figure things out, and uh, and don't be afraid, you know, like of those guys like. Collingwood's teacher, you know, will shut you down, you know, and uh, beautifully destroy all your ideas um, because uh, it's that's not really the point. Uh, the point is to to get a bit closer to the truth, you know, to develop uh, your thoughts, and uh, and it can be intimidating. And and sometimes uh, people think, you know, oh, I need to read like five hundred classics, you know, before I can even like think about anything, you know, and it's, that's really not true. And, uh, uh, if you read Collingwood's autobiography, that's enough, you know, I think you will have plenty of <laughs> material to think about. Um, 
but that's just uh, as an encouragement because I, I know this from myself as well. You know, this philosophy is just very intimidating and this has this huge tradition going back millennia and, uh, um, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, as long as you think orderly and systematic, <laughs> nothing can go wrong. Cool. Any other final thoughts, guys? All right, then uh, thanks for joining us, Luke. We'll be having you back on hopefully uh, hopefully regularly. Um, but it was, yeah, it was great talking to you. Fun talking about Collingwood. And we'll come back to him too. I'm sure we'll read more and uh, and have some thoughts to to share on some of his other ideas. I probably, I, I think I want to come back again to principles of art sometime, but, uh, um, but other stuff too. So hope you enjoyed it. We'll have some links to some Collingwood books below to that article we mentioned. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. We'll talk again later. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me on. Bye-bye.